One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our third series, which will launch in December. To fill the gap, this is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from across our first and second series. If you're missing haunting season, then perhaps this trio of chilling tales will help you go cold turkey. And with Christmas ads all over the telly already, more turkey is just over the horizon. We've entitled this episode Three Hauntings because it contains three of our ghost stories, including our Hampshire story, the Netley Abbey Phantoms, our Dorset story, William Doggett, the Vampire Ghost, and our Northamptonshire story, the Hexham Heads. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and would like access to all of our episodes ad-free, as well as loads of additional content like monthly exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, our newsletters, stories as text versions and more, then please sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, as well as our shop full of Three Ravens merch, please visit our website at threeravenspodcast.com. Otherwise, we'll speak to you soon, and we'll start spinning our yarns right after this. From the private papers of Dr. Isaac Watts, physic of Netley near Southampton, dated 10th of April, 1704. I feel a fool committing these grisly thoughts to paper. 
Yet, in the days since Mr. Taylor's demise, I have been unable to shift the thoughts of it from my mind. A fallen lintel feels an apt icon for my distress, for it is as if the idea has collapsed upon me and is too heavy to shift. Yet, while apt, the analogy is in poor taste. No matter, it is my intention that no living soul should ever read these pages. I only seek to write my account and, in doing so, free my mind from the whole affair so that then I might know peace. It started with a man named Sloane. Whether Sloane was his last name or first, I never learned, but he was where it all began. I believe he was a midshipman once, though that's but tittle-tattle and speculation. Though I inspected his body, which was riddled with scars and new small wounds, I learned little of his history or character, and no relations have since been traced. Besides, who Sloane was is of little important. Rather, it's what he did that matters. For though my friend, Mr. Taylor, had always been a man of ambition, the obsession which latterly overtook him would not have entered the course of his thoughts had he not encountered that shameful bandit. This is to say that anyone living in Netley, Southampton or nearby districts cannot help but know of the Abbey. Its shape protrudes from the landscape like a row of broken teeth, biting through God's green earth and standing rot grey against the clear southern sky. Its story is as twisted as the place, for, though constructed in the 13th century by Peter de Roche, who was then Bishop of Winchester, the Abbey has not been used for a holy purpose since 1536. Since that time, it has been a private residence, a manor owned variously by Marquesses of Winchester, Dukes of Somerset and Earls of Hertford, Aylesbury and Huntingdon, as just this brief history would imply, the buildings in the Abbey grounds have never been loved since the days of Henry Tudor. Rather, the place has been feared, hated, and sometimes speculated upon. Indeed, the place may be thought of as a bad penny, a tarnished coin rotten in its very metal, traded back and forth by any gentleman fool enough to think a bad penny spends the same as a good one. These conjectures were gross folly, as the people of Netley know too well, for legends of the Abbey's haunting abound, godless as such tales may at first appear. Still, Around any Eastly landlord's fire, you might hear the same God-fearing people tell the same irreligious accounts that the Abbey's grounds are haunted by two spectres, that of two Franciscan friars of the strict observant part of that order. It's said that when the abbey was dissolved, those monks were placed into the custody of the abbot, 
Thomas Stevens, though the bodies of the friars were never found and no further records made of their movements or transfers between authorities. Duly, it has long been surmised that the King's commissioners, Sir James Worsley, William Berners, and the brothers John and George Poulet, had the monks slain and their bodies buried somewhere in those deconsecrated grounds. Word of this slaughter first emerged when the Paulet family were gifted the Abbey estate by Tudor himself. The father, William, never lived there, but he and his sons oversaw the demolition of much of the edifice. They turned the church nave into a great hall, the transepts to luxurious apartments, the monks' dormitory to a long gallery. Next, servants there began to report unsettling nocturnal appearances. It was said the spectres of the two Franciscan friars appeared by moonlight, robed and bathed in blackish blood, carrying reliquaries in their gory hands. These rumours spread like moss, slow and steady, not least of them being that the two Franciscans had before death hidden a cache of papist ornaments in an undiscovered crypt deep in the abbey's grounds. Whether the Paulets knew the gossip or simply ignored it was of little consequence, for they soon sold the estate, and though it passed through many hands and new owners came and went, the rumours lingered on. Indeed, it was those arcane whispers which drew Sloane to Netley, and which, in due course, prompted his undoing. This is to say that, latterly, with the manor house having fallen into rack and ruin, it was sold to the enterprising Sir Bartlett Lucy of Chalcot Park. Lucy, hailing from Warwickshire, cared not a jot for the abbey itself, but saw value in its stone. So he sought resourceful entrepreneurs to dismantle the edifice and sell the best of what remained for the highest profit. The contract was advertised hereabouts for some time, though none in the borough would take it. All knew of the legends and feared such curses or dark fates which might befall them at the phantom hands of those blood-drenched friars. So it was that Sloane, knowing the abbey to be desolate and unguarded, sought to pursue the opportunity for grave robbing. Evidence he left went to show that he had taken a spade and quarried at several points, digging down into the earth in search of the hidden crypt. None would have guessed at his endeavours, or may have even known that he'd been there, camping alone in a lowly copse, had he not burst into Mrs. Pike's one night, covered head to toe in cold earth, pale as death himself. Though Sloane was known to none at Mrs. Pike's that evening, all listened close enough to recount his ravings. 
I was told by none other than Brenda Findlay, one of the most God-fearing women in the village, that the stranger pleaded with all who would listen to shrive him of his crimes. He had been digging, he said, seeking the lost treasures of the abbey when he'd found a tunnel, part collapsed, lined with rough-hewn stone. Gingerly, Sloane had clambered down into this underpass, lighting his way with a candle. And lo, he said, though it was tight and dank down in the causeway, he wriggled on through, struggling for a long while, all before finding a burial chamber filled with glinting silver and gold. As Mrs. Findlay told it, it was then that Sloane realised a grim truth. In crawling into the tomb, he had clambered over some fragments of human remains. Though the habit was decayed and the skin on the cadaver darkened as if to leather, he could see the face of the fallen fellow and believed he had therefore moved into such a position that there was then a long dead monk laid below him. Panicked though this made Sloane, he was intent, and the trove of relics was within reach, so Sloane said he reached out with his free hand, his candle held tightly in his other. Yet no sooner had he grasped one of the dusty icons did the corpse beneath him shudder, twist, and stare at Sloane with smoke-white eyes. Frightened out of his wits and feeling the cadaver moving about beneath him, Sloane made to escape, and as he did, the very cavern and tunnel in which he was started to collapse about him. So afeared was he that, muttering prayers, he laboured and struggled back through the cold ground as if gifted an angel's strength. Somehow, he made a miraculous escape, intent that all should know that the tunnel should be sealed and never trespassed upon again. Of course, the people of Netley aren't known as fools, and none would have given credence to Sloane's ramblings, save for a single dire fact. For in Sloane's fist, he gripped nothing less and a pectoral cross of pure gold, inlaid with garnet and slivers of silvery shell. Alas for Sloane, who would not release his grip on the cross. Perhaps if he had, it might have saved him. For though the priest was called, and so was I, by the time either of us reached him, Sloane had fallen down stone dead. Most horrid. His fist was still wrapped about the golden icon. So strong was his grip, even in death, that I could only prize the relic from him with the use of tools borrowed from Mr. Selwood, the ironmonger. Curious as this incident was, the matter may well have been settled then and there, and the cross buried back in the abbey's grounds had Mr. Taylor not been 
present. For Mr. Taylor, as everyone knew, was a very fine builder indeed. Hailing from Southampton, known as William to his friends, he listened to Sloane's story with great interest and, within the hour, had accepted Sir Bartlett Lucy's contract. He returned the agreement by a rider dispatched not long after midnight and at great expense, rousing stonemasons from their beds by dawn. Not two days later, the agreement was returned, signed and sealed, and William Taylor set to work. He hired men, more in number than his usual team of capables, and set to work, shifting the abbey's stones. At the same time, though, he had his men work at digging, for William's drive was less for Bartlett Lucy's coin than the treasure he might find buried deep in the abbey's earth. It had been agreed in the meanwhile that I should maintain possession of the pectoral cross. And for the longest time or so it seemed, I kept the infernal object in my chambers. I did not want it, but William swore me to silence on the matter and paid all who'd been in Mrs. Pike's that night to also hold their tongues. Even the priest stayed mute, though I suppose he's begging forgiveness now. After all, William said to me, you prized the cross from a dead man's hand. Surely you've earned the right to keep it in payment. He said this in jest, but the matter became more and more serious, for something about the relic got as deep under my skin as it had once been buried in the abbey's grounds. Perhaps it was a matter of conscience. But when I closed my eyes, I would see the cross there, glinting and sparkling as if lit by the sun of a pure summer sky. Yet, despite its fire, a shadow soon fell across my mind's eye, and I would shiver like a babe left out in the dead of winter. As days passed, I came to feel I was no longer alone in my lodgings. No matter where I placed it, the cross would move from room to room, cupboard to worktop, and I would hear steady footsteps walking in the dead of night. More than once, sat in my chair of an evening, I thought I heard whispered voices outside my door, hushed in Latinate prayer. Then, or thereabouts, the dreams began. It feels ghoulish to recount them, but recount them I must. They came not at once, but rather they built like a terrible edifice, or words on a scroll unfurling nightly. First, I saw them alone, the two pale Franciscans, walking the streets of Netley. From there, in my dim awareness, I saw them wander through Abbot's Wood and over the Itchen and the Hamble. The pair moved always in a ghastly procession, always progressing towards the Abbey, yet each night they would journey a little nearer. Moreover, each night, as dawn approached, their march would break, and they would turn back towards me, as if I were following on behind, and would reveal to me their ghastly wounds. 
One was slain by sword, I saw. Stabbed at first with his throat then cut, rendered unable to speak or scream. Instead, he would gabble, his gory tongue lapping at his blackened lips. Then there was the other, the friar who had been blind in his lifetime. I knew somehow that while his brother's name was John, the blind friar was named Peter. And Peter, unseeing, had been beaten and clubbed, knifed and speared with a dagger, and it was his mangled form which Sloane had found, crushed and crippled in that tunnel beneath the ground. I told William of my dreams, and he laughed at me, much in his manner, assuring me that the visions were nothing more than the prickings of a guilty conscience. If you're so worried, he said, throw the cross into the sea and let it sink to a spot where it will trouble you no more. Perhaps this would have been the wisest course, but it was not the one I charted. Instead, Night by night I followed the phantom friars, John and Blind Peter, trailing their way to what I knew must be their eventual destination. Such it proved to be, for not much more than three nights after I spoke to William, my dreams were filled with the sounds of hammers and mason's chisels. The sounds came before the sights, but the visions followed soon after. Those of William Taylor and his teens, digging and working on the abbey, knocking away at the ruin, stone by stone. After this, the terrors came to their climax, for I saw then, in the dream, William Taylor, smiling, overseeing the destruction of an arch stood below, surrounded by his men. He pointed and spoke in wordless silence, instructing his fellow craftsmen. Only beyond his sight, flanking him, one on each side, I saw in my dream the two friars standing, pointing up at that same arch until the lintel crumbled and spiralled downwards in a storm of rock which buried my friend beneath. The night I woke from this vision, my heart was thundering in my chest, dread making every nerve tingle. I felt there was nothing to do but immediately dress and walk to Mr. Taylor's residence before the sun had time to rise. This I did, knocking at his door until, in due course, he might be fetched to speak to me. What's, he said, you look as if you've seen a ghost. I explained to him as best I might, begging and pleading him to stop the works on the abbey. Only William being a jester, refused to hear the subject of my dreams as anything more than fantasy, laughing them off. I know I tried as much as I could, more than many men might, yet all my imploring served only to anger William, who slammed his door in my face and instructed me never to darken it again. With great regret, I travelled home, hearing the cock crow like Judas after Jesus' betrayal.
I returned to my bed, heart sick, and was only roused from it when a desperate rapping sounded on my own door later that day. It was a workman attending to report that, during the works at the Abbey, a high arch had collapsed, crushing Mr. Taylor under tons of ancient stone. The men worked hard at digging him out, and in the meantime I rode out to the scene on horseback. Few could believe him still alive after that ordeal, yet he was, clinging to life by a thread. Alas, he had taken part of a great timber beam to the head. The plank itself had splintered in such a manner that his skull was run clean through. His heart still beat in his chest, but he would not survive. So I pulled the shaft away, in doing so sending the soul of my friend soaring to the hereafter. It was a grim sight, truly, for the wound affected his eyes in particular, leaving him gored in much the same manner as Peter, the blind friar. So it has come to pass that William Taylor is scheduled to be buried. Though the dreams have stopped, as have the works on the Abbey, I can't but fear the visions will return. Thus I have decided to have the pectoral cross buried with Mr. Taylor so he might have a fraction of the riches in the next life that he so desperately craved in this. Moreover, perhaps through that act, if not through this testimony, I might be freed from the Netley Abbey phantoms forever. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The hedgerows were wild with brambles and spiked tangles, their fruit just beginning to darken, as I went towards the little church at Tarrant Gunville where the wedding would be celebrated. I'd been out of the area for some time, although I'd grown up there and still had an aunt local to the country, but I was still known. People in these parts have long memories for names and lineages, and in truth, I had never felt as at home in my adopted town of Beer Regis as I did among the winding lanes and rolling fields of Blamford. 
it was high time that I returned, and the design on Fate's tapestry had been woven in my favour. A death in the area, an opening for my trade, and my wife's ill health meant that removing back to Tarrant was the best possible choice. The air of the countryside far from the bustle of Beer Regis would soon see Amelia restored, and I could continue my calling among my own people. As I'm a doctor by trade, it was half to be expected that no sooner had I been recognised by somebody as the son of John Symes, I was pressed into service to deal with Carrie Pitfield's toothache. I was able to oblige, and the Pitfields invited me to her sister Marjorie's wedding in thanks. As I knew enough of the players, it was natural enough for me to accept the invitation without feeling like an outsider, and Mrs. Pitfield told me that Marjorie would consider it a compliment to have a real doctor from beer in attendance. The wedding day was soaked in sunshine and brightened by the colourful bonnet ribbons of the village girls, and the feast afterwards warmed with good cheer and strong cider brewed by Mrs. Pitfield. Marjorie and her groom Jim were flush-faced and pleased with one another, and were the centre of the dancing when the pipes and fiddles struck up. They were ushered off to bed eventually with the customary banging of pots and strewing of fresh flowers, and the few of us who were left sat around the fire enjoying another pot of cider. The light was fading outside, and so we got to lighting pipes and telling stories, as men do on such occasions. "'Who has Eastbury House these days?' I asked, because I'd been out of the area so long and was behind with local politics. There was immediately a shifting around on stools, a clearing of throats and a twinkling of eyes, as though I'd said something worthy of note rather than making an innocent inquiry. "'Eastbury House, what's left of it?' said Grandpa White with a wheezing tobacco-choked chuckle. "'What do you mean?' I asked, somewhat perturbed, as I'd always known it to be a grand house and the flower of the country. "'Was it not Earl Temple's?' "'It were always a hard struggle to keep it up,' said Grandpa. "'Like a hungry beast, it were, always wanting more time, more money, more fine trappings.' "'I heard it were a farm once, before it were a big house,' said Willie Stickland." Aye, that it were, and with a fine herd of shorthorns. The king's own admiral had it built out to suit his ends. What need he had for such a sprawler of a house he had, I can't say. I nodded, remembering walking over the fields to Eastbury House as a boy. Its five courts and wings had been an impressive sight to my young eyes. Precious little there is there now, said Stickland. What's happened? I asked, wondering how such a great house could have been brought low. Well, after George Bubb, the fat devil, had it, it fell into the hands of Earl Temple, and then to his son. Temple, the father, did his level best with it, said Grandpa White, pouring in money like well water without receiving much reward. But Temple, the son, soon found it too much for him and had to go off into Italy for his health. A goat many of our peers do the same, I hear, said Gaffer Dibbon, who thought himself something of a wit. And when he went off, said Grandpa, carrying on as though Dibbon had not spoken, he left it in the hands of the steward to manage the estate. And this was common enough in that time, and it was well known that the stewards usually lived fine lives, like lords themselves in their master's absence. William Doggett was his name, that steward, said Grandpa. Do you ever know the Doggett family, Doctor? The name was familiar to me, but I knew none of the family personally. Ah, I'll tell you of Doggett, said a voice from the chimney corner. 
It belonged to a very old man, so heavily lined and wrinkled as to look like he belonged to the grain of the wood surrounding the chimney piece, and who I had not previously noticed because of the thick cloud of pipe smoke obscuring him from view. Greedy he was, and sly, and canny too, and they say the maids never wanted to work at Eastbury House while he were around, for his hands wandered where they weren't wanted, and further besides. He'd been skimming off the top of the estate's profits for years before Lord Temple finally went off to Italy. He was deep in with some low-down types too, gambling men who were no strangers to breaking legs and causing accidents to those who owed them. The dice were his downfall, and he lost all his coin on the regular, so he was always short of money, even though his salary from the stewardship would have been a handsome one to a more prudent man. Well... When Lord Temple goes off, Doggett sees his chance. All kinds of things start to walk out of the house, things that never had legs before, plate and candlesticks and tea sets, right down to the sticks of furniture. And money changes hands for him too. Money that goes right into Doggett's pockets. But he loses it fast enough, same way he always does. He's drinking his way through Earl Temple's wine cellar and inviting all sorts to keep company with him in the house. All sorts of folk who wouldn't be welcome in an honest house and never saw the inside of a church neither, I wouldn't be surprised. And all the while, he's writing letters to Lord Malcolm telling him everything's falling apart and he needs more money to keep up the house and the estate and the farm. Of course, there were no farm left to speak of by then, because Doggett sold off the cattle and let the men go. My cousin Jack used to work on that farm till Doggett sent him off, said Charlie Rose, and there was a deferential shift around him as though his familial connection made him more important to the story. But then one day, Doggett gets a letter back, said the lined old man, or so the tale goes, from his lord telling him to have two wings of the house demolished to sell off the materials. Well, as you all know, there was more than enough house to get away with smashing down half of it and still leave something which would pass for a palace in these parts. The way the Earl saw it, the money that brought him would leave enough to make the repairs and keep the estate going. The stone were fine perfect marble, you see, so it was worth a pretty something. Of course, Doggett was delighted, but he chose to understand his orders a bit different. He had the whole main house knocked down and the parts sold off, all to satisfy his greed. There were only a tiny section of the north wing and the old stables left, which he kept for his use. Soon enough, he were going through the same dance as before, drinking and gambling away the money. But then, Doggett gets another letter, this one he don't want. Lord Temple's coming home, he's tired of Italy, and he's ready to settle down, run the estate and the farm. Course there is no farm, and no house, and not much of anything else either. Sir William Doggett is a desperate man, a rat cornered by the dogs. He thinks to buy back the stone and the wood and rebuild the house, but there's no money to buy, and besides, the stones is all built into other houses by this time. Parts of it are in the rectory, I believe, said the parson who had married the couple and who presumably lived in the rectory. Aye, that's the truth. There's more in Ashmore Manor, too. What did Doggett do? I asked, eager to learn the conclusion of the story. The only thing he could, said the old man grimly. He took Lord Temple's pistol and shot himself right under the jaw. 
they say the bullet went right through his head and out the top of it. There was an uncomfortable fidgeting, not least because the parson was among our company. Well, Temple gets back to England, finds no house, just a ruin of a stables and an estate piled high in debt. He did rebuild, but it's a much more modest house now, and the farms never come back. Thing is, though, said the old man, leaning forward and blowing a puff of pipe smoke out into the room. Doggett didn't lie quiet. They say doors in that house are opened by unseen hands, and that in the room he shot himself, the floor and ceiling are always stained with blood, no matter how much it's been cleaned and repainted in fine new colours. They've seen his ghost too, said Gaffer Dibbon with great relish. His face, just a mass of blood. I looked at the parson, expecting him to disapprove of such superstition, but he was nodding along as eagerly as any of them. How do you come to know so much about it? I asked the old man who'd told the story. Because Doggett were my brother, he said, a complicated knot of emotion suddenly twisting his face. And I hope he don't sleep quiet, for he don't deserve to. And he spat upon the floor, a gob of tobacco-stained spittle landing on the rushes. A general, pleasurable shudder passed through the company, and I had the feeling they would settle down to a long night of stories about spooks and spectres. I've never cared for such things, so I excused myself and began my walk back to the lodgings I'd taken some three miles off. The harvest moon was yellow bright in the sky, lighting a clear path for me to find my footing across the heath. I thought of the moon casting its light on the young, newly married couple, but I confess that I thought more of the story of Doggett and his sad and ugly end. As I approached the crossroads which would lead me to my lodgings or back to Beer and Amelia, I saw a collection of bobbing lights and heard a conference of voices. Good evening, I called, and the owners of the voices started and turned to me, appearing somewhat embarrassed. It was a group of local men, some of whom had been at the festivities earlier in the day and were still wearing their best clothes. Several were armed with forks and shovels, and I saw that they were standing round a gaping hole in the ground. "'What are you about here?' I asked, for the look of them in the moonlight was somewhat unearthly. The men shuffled and muttered. I crossed to the side of the hole they'd dug by the handpost and recoiled in horror when I looked down into it and beheld the body of a man newly dead by his appearance. "'That be the villain Doggett,' said one of the fellows, who I thought might be the husband of Martha Stickland, Willie's eldest daughter. I started, but it was the very man who had haunted the evening's conversation. But then I made myself walk to the edge of the makeshift grave and look down into it again. After all, I am no stranger to death. That cannot be, I said, and felt that in my heart to be true, for the body of the man I was looking down at was as fresh as though he had died that morning and as pink and healthy in colour as though he had simply gone to sleep. There was a bandage wound around his head and underneath his chin, but apart from that he looked as alive as I. But it was impossible, for the William Doggett of the story had died many years before. No sign of rot or decay had eaten away at this man's flesh, and no foul smell arose from the grave. "'It's unnatural,' said one of the men. "'And he walks. Everyone knows it. We're here to make sure 
he don't. I saw then that Martha Stickland's husband was holding in his hand a sharpened wooden stake, and recalled the outdated ideas of my native country that those who took their own lives were thought to remain on earth for all eternity, emerging from their graves to prey upon the living. The stake was supposed to hold them in position and prevent them from wrecking their mischief. I had no desire to be part of such a practice, so I bid them a curt good night. But I looked down into the grave of William Doggett again before I left them. Besides his freshness of appearance, I saw that the legs of the corpse had been tied together with a bright yellow ribbon, which appeared ghoulishly similar to the one Martha Stickland had worn in her hat to the wedding. To slow and down, said one of the younger men with satisfaction. I left them in haste and had walked a mile before I realised I was going in the wrong direction, back towards Tarrant Gunville and not to my lodgings. My thoughts were so disordered with visions of phantoms and corpses rising from the dead in a manner I knew I should not countenance as a man of reason. Before I knew it, I was almost at the edge of the Eastbury estate. Some unhallowed curiosity in me made me walk on, closer to the house until I saw its shape loom before me in the moonlight. It certainly was much reduced from the grand edifice I recalled from my childhood. Suddenly behind me, I heard coach wheels, thundering along the lane at a breakneck speed. I pressed myself back into the hedge, sure I would be mown down by the horse's hooves. But no coach could I see, and I would swear to this day that none was there, even when the sound was deafeningly close to me, and I could smell the sweat of the horses and feel the rush of wind against my face. I would swear too that as the sound and the sensation of the invisible coach passed me, I heard a hoarse voice, thick with drink, call out to the driver to speed home. Rooted to the spot with amazement at that which I had heard but not seen, I listened to the sound as it drew closer to Eastbury House. It seemed as though a few moments passed before I heard a sudden gunshot, piercing the night like a cry of anguish. I ran towards the house, certain my services would be required to avert some tragedy, but when I came to its entrance I found it dark and quiet, with no sign that anything had occurred at all. I wondered then if there was more to Doggett's brother's tale than mere fancy, but I feared that the work of the men at the crossroads had not been a success, and if anything had only served to anger the restless spirit. I did not move Amelia back to the place of my birth after all, and have never been back there myself, even though I am an old man now and have missed many births, marriages and funerals in the parish on account of my most particular aversion to the country around Tarrant Gumville and its haunting by the vampire William Doggett. I have only the highest regard for the dead. As I write this now, I do so in a darkened room, the nib of my pen dancing across a fragment of paper which was once strewn across dirty, bare floorboards. It is pitch black here, so perhaps what I am writing even now is illegible. Yet, it is for the best. This hovel is isolated and long abandoned, so no one will think to check here. 
And though I am uncertain how much of this message will be decipherable, I have come too far to turn back, and only write for if, by some chance, this message is found, the receiver should know this is a warning. The first thing to acknowledge is that I have made mistakes. Not just one, of course, but several. These errors lined up together have been like a snaking trail of dominoes. One struck the other, and the rest was mere inevitability. My name is Hyde. Francis Hyde. Though my reputation now is destroyed, I was once a respected scientist, an engineer and esteemed member of the British Astronomical Association with expertise in radioactivity. For many years, I contributed a monthly column to Practical Electronics magazine, was friends with well-known figures in British public life, and my knowledge of radio astronomy brought me into the orbit of any number of people many think of as kooks. Some of those very kooks are famous, of course, and you might know them from television. Yet their strangeness is due to an unalterable truth. Anyone engaged in pioneering research is, by the nature of their work, in the business of exploring the unexplained. Do not please misunderstand me. I do not mean the unexplainable. Even the most mystical or parapsychic phenomenon are, like all things, explainable given time and application. But this riddle, it is one that has confounded me and so many others. The fragmentary solutions I have gleaned brought me only ruin, and in taking this course of action, I hope to spare anyone else the shame of ignominy. It all started in 1971 with a boy playing in the dirt. That's not to say that he's responsible for the root phenomena, but rather my downfall began with his innocent discovery. His name was Colin Robson, and he was digging, weeding a flower bed, I believe, on a bright summer's day in his mother's back garden. They lived on Reed Avenue, the Robsons, in the town of Hexham, many miles north from here. The boy was, all told, astonished to find when his spade dug down into the earth a head made of stone. It was no larger than a tennis ball, buried but a few feet beneath the surface. It was, he said, uncannily like a head he had dreamed about, one he had been compelled to make for himself out of clay during an art lesson at school. The face of his sculpture had been so grotesque that his art master had made him destroy the effigy with immediate effect. And then he found the very object he had dreamed of, but a few metres from the place where he slept, buried beside an old stone wall. This boy, Colin Robson, showed the head he had found to his brother, Leslie, who had been watching out of their bedroom window, to return to the garden and continue to dig, at which time they found a second head. Only, on closer inspection, the two were not very much alike. Both were carved, one of dark stone, one of light, and they were threaded with seams of twinkling quartz. 
even now in the total dark, I can see that same quartz twinkling, though there is no light here for them to reflect. It is a quirk of their design, one of their many mysteries. The boys brought the heads inside their home on Reed Avenue and washed them clean. They noticed then the faces, the styling of carved locks resembling hair, the uneven mouths, the bulbous sockets for eyes. One, yellow-red in colour, they labelled the girl, and the other, greenish-grey in hue, they named the boy. They set the pair on the kitchen table, brimming with curiosity. Their mother, Jenny, was amused by the boy's discovery, but very soon they noticed with alarm that although the heads would be placed facing one direction, upon returning to the room, one or other family member would find that the heads had moved, as if they had turned their non-existent necks to look about them and survey their surroundings. Mrs. Robson took to turning the heads away from the room, leaving them facing the kitchen wall, but time and again, the heads would have turned. She thought it was a prank being played by her sons, but it was not. Not at all. Shortly after, the phenomena began. The first reports from the Robson family were of sounds, thumping noises like footsteps in the dead of night. The slamming of doors followed, then the noises of what appeared to be nails on wood. Further phenomena developed, including breaking glass, light bulbs, drinking glasses, panes of window glass, all would crack and splinter always at night. Then, one evening, when two of the Robson daughters were asleep, they were awoken by a rain of glass falling from the ceiling of their bedroom. The shards came down from nothing, appearing out of the air itself. The children, understandably terrified, refused to return to their bedroom, and theories began to develop that the Robsons were experiencing the terrors of a poltergeist. Yet their next-door neighbours, the Dodd family, had also begun to experience phenomena, glass breaking, sounds on the floorboards at night. Sylvia, the Dodd's daughter, was awoken one night to find a creature made of shadows running its fingers through her hair. She screamed and the creature vanished. Then, one night, when the Dodd's younger son, Ryan, was ill, his mother, Ellen, went into his room to keep the boy company. She lay beside him, but was awoken by Ryan, who was complaining about someone tugging at his feet. Ellen told Ryan not to worry, that he was feverish and imagining things. Yet... Then she, too, felt a sensation on her legs, hands touching her, tugging at her as if seeking her attention. She rolled over, looked and spied by her own report, a creature made of shadows. The beast was, she said, on all fours, yet had the aspect of something only half-human. From the waist up, she said, the creature was like a human being, amorphous but with long hair and slender arms. Yet, from the waist down, the being had the legs of an animal, 
perhaps a sheep or goat. And once Ellen locked eyes with the entity, she screamed and the beast fled. In a surge of adrenaline, Ellen Dodd leapt up and chased the shape, something she found later to be inexplicable. The animal leaped down the stairs and away she followed and found, when she did, that the front door of her home was wide open. It was her scream in the night that brought knowledge of the Hexam heads to Ellen Dodd, with Mrs. Robson inquiring as to the cause of her screams that night. The two women then spoke to the newspapers, and photographs of Colin and Leslie were taken at this time, holding their heads, smiling uneasily. Mrs. Dodd wrongly believed the heads may have come from the ruins of Hexham Abbey, so Jenny Robson took them there and gave them to a Mrs. Betty Gibson, a volunteer of some esteem. One night later, Mrs. Gibson sought to return them, saying she had experienced a tense and restless night but the Robsons encouraged her to find another way. Mrs. Gibson duly passed the heads to Richard Bailey, an amateur archaeologist who in turn gave them to the Newcastle Museum of Antiquities, reporting strange issues with the electrics in his home. There, they were inspected by Barbara Harbottle and Robert Miquette, who completed inspections and drawings of the head, but both reported a strange energy coming from the relics and a cracking of a number of glass specimen cases, so implored Mrs. Robson to take them back. Thankfully for the residents of Reed Avenue, the press attention brought the Robsons into contact with Dr. Anne Ross, a professor at the University of Newcastle. As expert in Celtic carvings, she had worked a great deal at ancient sites in her native Northamptonshire, including the vast Brack Mills burial outside Northampton, and was only too keen to take the heads into her custody. The Robsons and the Dodds were said to have had their homes exercised after this, but ultimately both families moved away. Likewise, although the carvings remained known as the Hexham Heads from then on, they were in almost perpetual motion. That is, until they came into my possession. When Dr. Ross embarked on her study of the heads, she soon concluded that they were over 1,800 years old and matched similar heads from the ancient kingdom of Brigantia. She had seen many such carvings and even collected them, owning over 200 similar Celtic relics from across central and northern England. These kinds of heads had been used, she wrote, in a paper published in the journal Archaeologia Aeliana in ancient pagan head rituals. It was Dr. Ross who found the remnants of red dye through the carved hair of the head, previously known as the girl which she renamed the Witch. The dye was later identified as iron oxide quarried from Hunsbury Hill. Ross renamed the female head because, although she was a woman of science and some regard appearing on television at several Northamptonshire dig sites, she too began to experience witch-like phenomena. In the house she shared with her son, daughter, and husband Richard, her family members and visitors all began to report sudden plunges in temperature, an atmosphere of darkness and shadow that Anne Ross described as evil. 
Amidst this malevolent atmosphere, Dr. Ross and her children reported noises, footsteps, the slamming of doors, breaking of glass, and a sense of an angered female presence. Then, one night, Dr. Ross was awoken in a panic, feeling a presence at the end of her bed, though this shape was of something else entirely. She turned to look at the entity and reported seeing a creature made of shadow, though it was an inversion of the sorts from that reported previously. For the beast Dr. Ross saw looming over her, pitch black against her white bedroom door, was a male being with the lower portions of a man and the upper body and head of a wolf. Much like Ellen Dodd, Dr. Ross said she felt inspired, compelled perhaps to chase the creature. So she leapt from her bed and dashed after the animal, noting its thick, wisping, smoke-like fur. It ran down the stairs, she said, bounding towards the back of her house. Yet when she followed, she found no signs of the looming shape, only the two stone heads sat on her work table, both looking at her as if they had long been awaiting her arrival. A similar occurrence was experienced by Dr. Ross's daughter, Berenice. Alone at home one night while her parents were at an archaeological conference in London, she was disturbed by the feeling and atmosphere of the house. She left the sitting room of the home and stepped into a corridor by the stairs, spying there that same shape, black and tall, with the legs of a man and the head and upper body of a wolf. She screamed and it ran away, beyond the music room and into her mother's office. After this incident, Dr. Ross felt she could abide the phenomena no longer. Frightened, she donated her entire collection of Celtic heads, driving them herself from Northamptonshire to the University of Southampton, where the carvings underwent further study by Dr. Ross's old colleague, Professor of Geology and Dean of the Faculty of Science at Southampton, Dr. Frank Hodson. With the heads gone, the Ross family reported no further activity in their home, although they too had their house exorcised, clearing it of any malignance which might have lingered. At Southampton, Professor Hodson set about dating the heads, reiterating Dr. Ross's findings. Only then came a twist in the tale. A lorry driver named Desmond Craigie came forward, reporting to the newspapers that the Hexham heads were anything but an ancient relic. Rather, he said he had been working at a cement factory in the 1950s and had felt compelled to make the heads as a gift for his daughter, Nancy. Craigie had lived at Reed Avenue in the very house where Colin Robson dug the shapes from the earth, and he presented replicas of those same heads to the University of Newcastle for verification. These replicas were studied by Dr. Douglas Robson, who concluded that, yes, they were made of an artificial cement, but Craigie's heads were not the same as those in Hodson's hands at Southampton. Though almost identical, the sets of heads were made of different materials, beggaring the question as to why Craigie had made such terrifying effigies for his young daughter to play with. Furthermore, Dr. Ross was adamant. The designs 
were Celtic, and Craigie said ultimately that he had dreamed of the shapes and made them as he had for that reason. It was after this that the so-called Hexham heads came into contact with my friend, the eminent inorganic chemist at the University of London, Dr. Don Robbins. Head of the Dragon Project, Don had studied a great many stone objects and monuments, including Avebury Ring, Stonehenge, the Rollwright Stones, and countless others. It was his assertion, and the belief of many in the Dragon Project, that such stones have the potential to carry power. And all this time later, I can only agree. Through measuring ancient stones, including throughout the year, and recording variations in natural radiation, ultrasound, magnetism, and conducting experiments in archaeoacoustics, the Dragon Project developed a number of working theories about what has since become known as stone tape theory. This, if you are unfamiliar, is the idea that memories, souls, experiences, all aspects of human life can become locked within, and perhaps even inextricably trapped within objects that otherwise appear inanimate. As any scientist working on radiation knows, there are sounds in this universe that no one can explain. We have the means to block some out. Some are constants, and we have theories, of course, and work to test them. But my own experiences led me into contact with Don, who met me and, within months, had explained what the heads had done to him. The first thing he said was that when he went to pick them up from Dr. Hodson, packed into a cardboard box, his car would not start. He removed the heads from the vehicle and found then that the engine would run. He concluded that the heads were doing something to the electrics, and ultimately he had to tell the stones out loud to behave themselves. Once he did, they obeyed, and he made the journey back to his home. Once there, he said, the issues with electrics continued. He was in contact with Dr. Ross, and although he experienced none of the alarming nocturnal visitations, he did report strange occurrences in his home. He measured the heads and concluded two things. Firstly, that one head was showing much more activity than the other. This one, the girl or the witch, he said, behaved particularly strangely, and the readings he took from her made no sense. His second conclusion was that the heads were speaking to one another. They seemed linked and communicated in a language measurable in both ultrasound and alpha activity, quantifiable by the use of a Geiger counter. This is how, one July day in 1984, Don brought the heads to my door. We ran a number of experiments, including one involving a Faraday cage. And lo and behold, I could begin to see this language, signs of the speech between the stones. Even when separated, they tried to communicate. Then Don left the stones in my care, which is when the true horrors began. It had been a mistake to keep the stones separated. 
they told me in my dreams. Likewise, the Faraday cage angered them. The phenomena others had reported was abundant in my home, which was at the time in Camden. My equipment began to malfunction. The electrics in my house flickered on and off. Temperatures plunged, and of course, there were breakages. Drinking glasses, light bulbs, picture frames, window panes, all cracked and splintered. Rain of glass would fall inside, doors opened and closed, and amidst the banging and commotion, before long I was forced to board up my windows, which is how I learned how much they enjoy the dark. The names the stones were given were not incorrect. The girl and the boy. The witch and her brother, best I can tell. Evidently, they share a deep bond, and although I cannot understand their ancient manner of speech, I have some sense of the pain they are under. For their bodies half human, half other, appear to me exactly as intended. They were, I suspect, seen as dangerous by those in their community and so mutilated, their corpses blended with those of beasts as a dire warning to others. Their spirits, locked into these stone grotesques, were likely used as most Celtic heads once were, pinned above doorways as amulets or used in ceremonies for their votive power. Alas, these disfigured siblings seemingly now can never be restored to any natural state. I have tried, of course, but any attempt to scratch or mark the stones has led only to my own suffering. By this I mean extreme and immediate physical pain, which is how I have developed my current course of action, a hypothesis I am shortly to test. As for my downfall, well, it was not long after I developed my working theories about the heads that I became a persona non grata. When people came to my home and saw the chaos, the breakages, the bedlam created by the entities running about the house by night, frolicking and gambling and toying with one another and with me, guests concluded that I was mad. Soon, nobody would come to visit me at all, but I was hardly short of company. I admit I became covetous of the heads, conscious of their power. And when Don asked for them to be returned, I took a simple calculation. I had seen myself how the electrics of an automobile could be disrupted by the stones, and so I took them driving. When my car crashed, I left it where it was, having already packed my bags. I then proceeded on foot. My residence now, as you know, is deep in South Sea Forest. Here we are surrounded by oaks planted by the Druids, hundreds of trees centuries old, and, by and large, the girl and boy are happy here. They run in the woods by night, encourage me to follow and speak their tongueless words in joy and praise. But I have my hammer, and I am old. 
The time has come, and life is hard living beyond the fringes. So, in but a few moments, I will raise my hammer, and beneath a large rock, I will simultaneously smash the heads to powder. The pain of doing so will be searing, and it will kill me, I'm sure. But my shack here is secluded. No one has been by in many weeks, and if they do come... I hope that all they will find is this note, my remains, and fragments of quartz dust. If you are such a person and have come here, my advice is as follows. Should the entities be free, let them roam. They may yet find their home. Whether they are here or gone, however, burn this missive, provided, of course, that you, like I, have only the highest regard for the dead. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.